Hello. Hey, hey there it is. All there right. we go. How's everybody doing? Good. How you doing? Pretty good, man. It's the first day of fall, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? Yeah, it's the fall equinox, whatever, whatever. Oh, nice. Yeah. Definitely yeah. feels hey, man. Yeah. I was at the USC game last night versus Washington State, which they actually won. And, uh, you know, I was feeling great. And uh, as I was passing by all these conversations, everybody was talking about how perfect the weather is right now, even more than usual. So, for real, it's, it's nice out. Yeah, it is. The, the weather over here in Maryland is freaking crazy nice. I was coming home the other day and, uh, it, you know, usually we got to have the air conditioning on, you know what I mean? Because it's so, you know, it's so stifling hot and everything. But, I mean, the breeze was perfect. Every Everything was perfect. Yeah, it's a, it's kind of similar out here in Colorado. It's starting to get a little chilly, but I like it. It's the perfect time of year out here. Oh, yeah, perfect football weather. Oh, yeah. Oh, we can get to that, too. I think I have a football-related topic coming up. But uh, Cool. Let's see. So, John, you want to go ahead and introduce yourself to our listeners? No doubt. No doubt. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is John Lee Smithson IV. Everybody calls me John and then the letter L, John L. I am a co-host of a uh, hip-hop show called The Light Podcast. Uh, we're available on all social media platforms, as well as all music play services from Google Play to iTunes to uh Mixed cloud. I mean, you name it, we're on it. Um, we've been around for about five years, and uh, we basically just talk about how hip hop has been so influential to our culture. We focus more so on the golden age of hip hop. I also do uh, some some sports radio as well with uh, Locker Room Talk Radio, and I do a political show on my light podcast platform called Politicking. Um, and again, all these things are free to download. Go out there, check them out. We have probably around uh, 40 different episodes um, of some of your favorite uh, hip-hop artists. Uh, so we're looking forward to uh, coming out with an Eminem episode here pretty soon. And uh, that's – so that's – yeah, I know a lot of people are are very hyped for that. We um, had the opportunity uh, – spoiler alert, but also teaser. Teaser alert, let me say it that way. We had the opportunity to uh, sit down and interview Eminem's – his first producer when uh, he was still in high school. And uh, so he's on the podcast and uh, he has some pretty interesting things to say about him and the maturation of his career. So uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it's just, it's just myself and uh, my co-host or the actual the developer of the light podcast, his name is Scott Pearson. So um, this was his brainchild. He just brought me in kind of like, this is you and Joseph's brainchild and you guys are just bringing me in. So uh, yeah. as they, uh, as the old country song says, uh, you know, I got I got friends in uh, low places. <laughs> <laughs> Don't we all? Every uh, and you're also a uh, Marine Corps veteran, so I wouldn't doubt that you do have friends in low places. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, here we go. Here we go from the, from Squidly D over there from the Squid. Couple of Squidwards. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Joe and. <laughs> Yeah, Joe and I are a couple of Navy veterans, as our uh, listeners are already aware. So we all got that in common. So now that we've got that intro out of the way, thanks for that, John. Let's talk about, uh, we don't have to get too in-depth with the Eminem beef, although I would like to hear 
your take on it just quickly as to who you think won. But mostly I want to look at this from uh, from a perspective of uh, modern hip hop. How does M look in the modern gym- generation? Do you think he's coming off as someone who's aging as gracefully as, say, a Jay-Z or somebody like that? I don't think he's aging as gracefully as somebody like a Jay-Z. And one of the things that we often talk about, uh, Scott and I, is the fact that the best thing, you know, people forget what hip-hop is about. Hip-hop is that street reporter telling you about a place you'll never go, you've never been. And they're giving you that accurate depiction, kind of like a great writer, kind of like a Robert Frost or Edgar Allan Poe, where whenever you're reading their material, you get this, you get a vivid image in your head, all right? One of the things that's made Jay-Z so timeless is the fact that he can wax poetically about his current situation, where he is right now in his life, from his, you know, off of 444, he talked about messing up with his wife, the, you know, being a father, you know, art, how, he's, how his investments are coming, he talked about, you know, everything where he currently is in his life. I don't think M does that as well. Don't get me wrong. M is a tremendous wordsmith. I have a, you know, very high regard for his ability and everything. But I don't think he's one of those people who can sit down and give you that very vivid image of where he is right now in his life. Maybe one day he will be able to, but I don't think that he's that type of artist. Now, with respect to the M. Uh, to him and Machine Gun Kelly and everything. It's hard for me to say who the winner was because I don't have a lot of, uh, I don't have a lot of listening ear for, you know, Machine Gun Kelly. I mean, I heard, you know, I heard how he went in on him and yeah, it was fire. You know, I do have to admit, but, you know, everybody can make one hot song. I mean, you know, there was the rapping Duke. (laughs) Everybody can make one record you know everybody can make one good cut uh but i don't i don't so i think m crushed him because m came with more in my opinion uh more hardcore delivery of what he was saying whereas machine gun kelly you know he talked about and i saw machine gun kelly on sway the other day and he was saying you know a lot of stuff that m was saying were lies i haven't gotten that deep into it to look it up and you know, see who's telling the truth and see who's, you know, just embellishing um, in order to make it sound good on wax. But just from a hip hop fan and just listening to how they both came at each other, I think M crushed it. Yeah, I would agree with you there. I mean, obviously, M's was better. He was far more talented. But I I don't think it was as, as much better as it should have been. I, and I think Eminem is coming across to a lot of fans nowadays as a guy who's been a recluse for the last 20 years and just came outside and expected hip hop to be exactly how it was when he left it. Whereas you'll see somebody like Jay-Z or anybody that, oh, go ahead. It completely changed too. Guy's brand was an underdog. It was a white rapper. And I think that once he no longer was in that you guys were talking about how Jay-Z can talk about where he's at I think that to be honest with you most hip-hop heads give Jay-Z 
do that, then they might allow Eminem to do so. Just because, again, like Eminem, I feel like has had to go to, to prove that he's one with African American culture. Where Jay Z never had to do that. Jay Z could just be himself. Yeah. Oh, one thing you're just breaking up a little bit. So, but um, yeah, I can see where you're coming from. And can Eminem I just had... say what? So can I disagree with that a little bit? I don't think M ever had to prove that he was about the culture because there were so many white rappers before him. I mean, you, you can go all the way back to third base, beast voice. There's there, you know what I mean? He wasn't, I didn't, for, I'm just saying for me and for the people that I was around that was listening to M, they were all black and no one I'd never heard. And they were all younger folks. They were all like you guys' age, you know, like my nieces and stuff. I mean, who are now, you know, about to, you know, be in their mid twenties and stuff like that. Um, I just never heard anybody say, oh, he's not, he's not black. Now I heard that about, you know, Iggy and all these other folks, but I never heard that about him. I'm, I'm, I'm just saying me. But let, let me ask you, one, these other people that you're around, we're putting everything or he is BC Wood, Icer, and these other white rappers you're talking about. And two, they wouldn't have to do that because M from the very beginning, again, had set up his brand to where he was this underdog white rapper who grew up in, in this black environment and that was misunderstood. And so as soon as you came into contact with his brand, that had already been communicated. So why would you have to re-communicate it? That's, I think you and I are both saying the same thing, just from different perspectives. I don't, I, I'm, and I'm saying, I never have been around anybody who has said, oh, he's not black or not necessarily he's not black, but he's not in tune with black culture. Like he's, like he's just faking. He's just a culture vulture. I've never heard him, him being accused of being a culture vulture. Oh, people are saying that now. That was kind of the big argument surrounding the, uh, what was the last one? Revival? Right. Yeah, because people got one glimpse of the track list and they're like, okay, Ed Sheeran, Pink. I don't see anybody from Griselda or Slaughterhouse. So what are you doing, M? We do That's what I'm saying. He can't. He can't. I don't think he can go to the same places that Jay Z can, without having that question come up. I just don't. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I I still. I mean, I understand. Like you know, the internet sphere. There was some of those rumblings out out there. You know, what I mean, by those folks. But even on none of my, you know, for the light podcast, because we posted about it. Um, Drew shared tracks with me and everything, and I've never had that conversation with him being, I mean, with anyone about him being a culture vulture. But don't get a twist, though. Like, I mean, there's things that eminent, I mean, it's just, it, it's, you know, how American society still is at this point. There's places that Eminem can go that, that Jay Z can't. But I guess I just meant in terms of Jay Z being able to be a, um, like a fully three dimensional hip-hopper i think it's you know it's refreshing for us for jay-z to go into to these echelons of society that originally black folk couldn't get into into the past uh, right. and put on a, you know a certain kind of style that you know, just wasn't available where if eminem were to do it it wouldn't really be all that refreshing because we already know that story and so that's why i don't think that m can really his situation i mean it I think it would be interesting, but he did talk about, okay, I grew up generally working class um, in uh, the suburbs of Detroit, 
and um, and now I'm dealing with these issues of being wealthy, but I also don't think he embraces um, that wealth in the same way that Jay-Z does. I think Jay-Z's goal has always been to basically transcend where um, a lot of Eminem's goals seem like it was just about proving himself from the very beginning. I mean, you look at 8 Mile and the whole premise of the film, you know? Right. Yeah, I don't I don't think um, M had that same transcendence type of uh, trajectory or or motivation because he's white. Whereas Jay-Z being a black rapper, his idea, his perspective, the his his end goal was way different. Whereas M's end goal is I just want to be respected by hip hop artists. All that, you know what I mean? Being rich and all that and all that, all that. I don't have to worry about that. You understand what I'm saying? Because so there's that social ecological type of aspect to it. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's the whole point I was just trying to make of why I feel like I don't think Eminem, as we get older, translates as, translate as, excuse me, translates as well because it's a fundamentally different life to live. You know what I'm saying? And it's, it'd be one thing if we were talking about, for example, like Tiger Woods, you know, who's a barrier breaker on the other side. Um, But we're talking about hip hop where like most of the legends in this art form are black. Um, So it's more about in this way, it's more about how um, human can you make your art form? Um, if you are black, I feel like, as opposed to like proving that you belong, if that makes any sense. And so I just think it's a fundamentally different experience that like for us, I'm assuming that you're, you know, also African-American guy that like, that's not what our experience is. I've just gone to two, you know, top 30 business schools and our experience is more like M&Ms in that context where it's like, you kind of have to prove yourself. You don't get to just be just the best human. You know, you have to be the best at that specific thing for people to respect you, you know. Got you. I definitely see your point. I see your point as well. So let's see, shifting gears. So let's say, um, let's move from this and let's go on to Wale. So, John, Joe and I, a few weeks ago, we're having a Wale discussion. And we're saying, how is someone that contributes as much to hip hop as he does and that that uh, that has all these new, like cutting edge conceptual albums and mixtapes. Somebody who has this great sound and who's a wordsmith, like we were talking. How has someone this talented remained largely underlooked? And where does someone like Wale fit into today's landscape? Did you hear his new EP, John? I did. Um, I haven't really stepped through it, uh, but I have listened to it. If, and hip hop has y'all know what I mean by step through it. <laughs> I haven't really broken it down, but I have listened to it, um, and I like it. And I agree with you. He doesn't get a lot of respect being here in the uh, DMV area, and because Wale is from DC, uh, I hear a little bit more of it in the general space. If you understand what I'm saying, mm-hmm. but once you get outside of this space, you're correct. I mean, he really isn't talked about as well as he should be talked about. I think he's going to be one of those artists who's going to be appreciated later on, you know, once his full impact is, is uh, felt. Mm-hmm. And you think uh, maybe he tried a little bit too hard to chase hits for 
like a critical the critical point in his career where he could have like when he reached that fork in the road he I think he hit the same point that Jay Cole hit but came into the game without the uh without the cult following that J. Cole has, because people want to talk about cult followings. Not a lot of people have one like J. Cole that he got from that mixtape circuit. Whereas, say, around 2013, when uh, Born Center came out, and J. Cole was like, look, I can't chase hits. I'm not good at this. I can't do what Jay-Z wants me to do. I just have to go back to the model and do what I do. Then we get Forest Hills drives and driving uh, KOD. We get where J. Cole is now, where he's considered one of the top three. Whereas Wale, who came up with uh, J. Cole, just kind of branched and went the other way. And it seems like he was trying to chase those hits. Would you agree with that? Most definitely. Most definitely. And I think it is because he came out of this DMV area. Um, So, you know, for people who don't know, Washington, D.C., Maryland, and Virginia – these three states are really close together. When I say really close together, I mean like people often commute to one of these three states and live in another one of these three states, if you know what I mean. Like people will live in Maryland and they'll commute to Virginia to work or they'll live in D.C. and they'll commute to Maryland to work because it's not a far drive. Within 45 minutes, you can be from Maryland. You could have gone through D.C. and into Virginia in just a 45-minute drive. So the local music scene is very vast, whereas we talked about Eminem earlier, you know, all most artists will typically blow on a local circuit and then that ripple carries them out and that's when they get real big. So that local circuit for M was very small and then he got bigger. That local circuit for Wale is pretty, it's, it's, it's really large. I mean, you can also throw Delaware in, into the mix because it's right there next to uh, Baltimore, Maryland. But with all that being said, he did try to chase hits, but I think he's learned his lesson. That's why he came back out with this EP that he has out now. Um, I think he learned his lesson before that as well. My sister-in-law worked on his video, White White Shoes, which was which was pretty poignant for what was going on in the uh, D.C. area at that time for you know a lot of kids getting killed over shoes and things of that nature. Um, so I think he's trying to bring it back, and I think with this new EP, he's heading headed in that direction where he's no longer just chasing hits and making good music. I would agree. Joe and I kind of talked about that a while back and said that that was the move for him. I mean, there are plenty of rappers that have done that throughout their careers. I think Fabulous did that after a while. He, I think he kind of realized he's never going to break it into the top, the upper echelon of who's in the conversation of being the best rapper at the moment. So he got comfortable in his lane and just kept staying consistent. And that's the reason he's still around now. He's Yeah, I definitely agree. I definitely agree. Even though I do like fabulous. <laughs> he's a hell of a wordsmith. I think he's a hell oh, of a yeah. yeah, that's what I'm saying. It just, the, the industry wasn't really checking for another fabulous, like, radio record. And that's, that's just to say that the style changes, which is another testament to Jay-Z's longevity, I think. Being married to Beyonce definitely helps him stay in touch and stay relevant. But I think Jay-Z would have been relevant with it without Beyonce's influence. Okay, but was the EP better than the album about nothing? No, it was not. No. But I think it put him, you know, it kept that arrow going in the direction of, I'm going to keep making good music versus, you know what, I had four hits off of that uh, LP so let me emulate those four hits to chase hits. 
Mm-hmm. Whereas yeah. it was better than Shine. Did you listen oh, to Shine? Much yeah, much better. Yeah. Much better. And he took some conceptual risks on Shine. It's like I saw what he was trying to do. He did a song with Jay Balvin, which was the smart thing to do because I mean, if you've been if you've been noticing now, it's we're kind of having that resurgence of Latin influence in hip hop, like we had in the early two thousands, around two thousand four, two thousand five, when Daddy Yankee came out, right. and there was all this reggaeton influence. That's coming back in a major way, and Jay Balvin is literally the most streamed artist on the planet, getting billions of views. Doing shows tonight and tomorrow here in LA. Oh, that is going to be packed like crazy. You thought the USC game was big. Oh, dude, there's always something going on out here. <laughs> yeah, you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right. <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah, so he's taken those risks. He was the first artist to kind of catch on to that wave. And it shows that foresight that Wale has to do uh, an entire album with Jerry Seinfeld and do a Seinfeld themed album, marrying those two worlds. It was it was the type of foresight that shows the genius of Wale and kind of you kind of see his frustration in not being able to crack the mainstream in the way that he feels he should. I would say a lot of us think he needs to just stay in that lane and just make what music he wants to make and people will gravitate to it like they did with J. Cole. What I liked in the press release that they did for the EP is they called him DC's most poetic MC. And honestly, I do think that that's his best lane is when he kind of switches back and forth between like true kind of feelings, but then also goes into a spoken vibe. And I think that's when he's at his best. And I also think it best, I mean, um, you know, John, you're actually from the DMV, but when I've gone there, um, that's always the vibe I get about DC is it's like a, a real great place for poetry and it has a really uh, poetic culture. And so I that's one thing that he can do that very few other people um, in hip hop right now can represent very well, you know? Right. Just one correction. I'm from Pittsburgh, PA. Um, I moved down here to Maryland in uh, 95. So uh, go Steelers. Uh, <laughs> I can never say I'm from the DMV because that'll make me a Washington football fan or, you know, that purple team. That I don't even say their names, you know what I mean? Mm. Purple that purple team that's that's in Baltimore, which, you know, we own. But anyway, we ain't going to talk about that. Right <laughs> uh, that is funny. Um, so uh, let's switch gears again. So speaking of football, there is a new article here I'm looking at on CNN that says uh, playing football young may mean earlier cognitive and emotional problems. So you guys are we all played football growing up, correct? Yes. Yeah. And we're all we've all been uh, fans of football. We all followed it. And I mean, does this new information about CTE and how the NFL may have been trying to cover up these reports and keep them from getting out? How do we feel about this? And how does this um, does this tarnish football's legacy? Does this make you feel like maybe you wouldn't want your kids or your grandkids to play football unless you knew that they were taking precautions to make it safer? So I'm going to pivot this question just a little bit because we already kind of covered it in our our CTE segment um, a few months ago. Okay. Um, And what I'm going to answer is since our last time that we talked about this, um, how, what do I see, how do I see it being perceived in the general culture or among the general public when I go out or when I talk to people about it? 
And the cultural shift that I believe I'm starting to see is one, I feel like the Ka- the Kaepernick thing's finally starting to die down and it's becoming more of an afterthought, especially after Nike stepped in and um, just endorsed Kaepernick. I think people just weren't willing to fight it anymore, at, at least not as much. And then two, like having conversations with people who like football or, or watch football, I think it's gotten to the point that we accept, just like uh, in Rome, you had gladiators who went and fought in the Colosseum and they would fight for their freedom or fight for riches. And obviously a lot of those gladiators died. I think that it seems like most American people have accepted the fact that it's damaging to play football. Um, but the justification is that it provides opportunities to people that wouldn't have other opportunities in the same way that something like the military does. And I think that that's where it's going to sit in our society is still this place where people who maybe live in middle of nowhere, Louisiana, or even uh, maybe in on the south side of Chicago, and there's just no resources that still use football to launch another career. Um, and, and you're also seeing more uh, athletes who are doing only two to four years of football, of pro ball, and then they get a graduate degree or they, seg- they segue into something else because um, they're just using it just like we use the military to get away from um, that poverty or that lack of resources. Wow. I agree with everything you just said, with um, which is very rare for me. But <laughs> but, uh, but I'll just add on to it that you know I would I love football. Uh, football did so much for me in my life uh, that you know, and it hurt my heart when my son stopped playing. He stopped playing uh, going into his sophomore year and just focused on baseball. I understand. I wish the NFL would have come out and didn't hide that CTE information, but I don't think it would have prevented anybody from playing football. I think the only thing that would have done was quickened the pace of the research in order to try to, you know, stay off those or to try to prevent those occurrences from occurring that's stupid but trying to prevent people from getting concussions like they're doing now so therefore the game would be much safer now for my son if you understand what i mean if they were to start at this movement that they're doing now back in let's say 95 then the movement would be so much better and we'll be so further down the road with respect to preventing concussions in football players Yep, I absolutely agree with that, too. I think, um, yeah, we're not going to change our culture. I mean, football is the American sport. It, it has surpassed baseball and anything else to be the number one sport in this country. And it's starting to take roots in other places like Mexico and England. You're seeing a lot of uh, fandom for the NFL. So I think, yeah, they wasted a lot of time and did a lot of dirty things, not having the players' backs that were suffering from this bearing the information just to, to avoid bad press. And that's a bad look for the NFL as a company. And they're not, they shouldn't be, <laughs> that's nothing foreign to them. I think the NFL as a company, as an organization has bad press all of the time. But as far as the game of football, yeah, I agree with you guys. I don't think anybody's going to stop playing it. And um, let's, let's go, let's take it here. So, uh, Joe, earlier you mentioned that people will use football as a means to an end now. They're not looking at it like a lifetime career. You're seeing players do their time like Arian Foster. He's like, I don't love the game anymore. I'm going to I'm gonna go do podcasting. 
and many people will branch off that way. So I think a lot of kids that really love the game will end up playing it in college, but they, they don't end up being compensated. So do you guys feel like there should be some type of uh, monetary or tuition reimbursement or some type of compensation for, uh, for college athletes? Well, so there already is, a, uh, you know, a lot of them are on scholarship. Well, yeah, so. I mean, for like all of them. For, say, a kid walks on, doesn't get a scholarship, and they end up playing on the team, and it's consuming a lot of their time. Do they get, should they get some type of reimbursement? Got it. Um, well, the thing, <laughs> we were talking about this like a week or two ago. The main thing that I want to see is I want to see NCAA football back on Xbox and PlayStation. That's what I want. <laughs> <laughs> say, let's start there, right? <laughs> it's been like five years since the last time there was a, an addition. And I guess the whole way that this happened was, um, what is it, uh, EA Sports was willing to make the game and uh, I believe it was like some other organization, like the players for sure were, were willing to be in the game, but the NCAA basically shot down creating any more iterations of this game because they didn't want to play the college players. Uh, players. And um, I don't know. I just think if you do some sort of profit sharing arrangement, right? We say, okay, everybody has to sign this waiver. If you want to play pro ball, you have to sign this thing that says you'll be in the video game, or you don't, and then they just make you a number, whatever. But anybody who does agree to that gets a cut of the game's profits, which EA Sports was willing to do. I don't see why that's such a big deal and what's so wrong with that, because everybody's getting the same amount. You're not saying, oh, you're going to get more because you're a bigger player. You're going to get less. Everybody's getting the same amount. And again, we, we all know that this is a sport that's damaging to people. Why would you have a problem with them getting a little bit of a stipend, you know, and setting them up a little bit better, especially if you know that it's very likely that they'll have high medical bills in the future due to cognitive decline. So I just, I don't get what the, at least with the video game part of it, I don't see why it's an issue for the players to get paid from that at the very least. I don't disagree with you. I mean, the only thing I would add on to it um, is the fact that I would defer the payment until they graduated college. It would be put in a trust. You know what I mean? Because if you want to remain, if you want college sports to remain an amateur level sport, okay, then in order for the old school mind thinkers to get past that point, if you say, okay, we'll put this in a trust that the kid can't touch until the kid gets out of college, I think that'll help soothe their mental situation to help them get, you know, to help them understand why it's important. Because at the end of the day, when college sports were first, you know, when they first came about, they weren't making the money that they're making now. I mean, you look at the quarterback for Oklahoma, right? What is his name? Kyler uh, Murphy, starting quarterback for Oklahoma. You know, better than me. I'm a hold back check it. Oh, okay. Okay, all right. But there's quarterback for Oklahoma. I think his name is Kyler Murphy, all right? Starting quarterback, and he's a heck of a quarterback. He just signed a baseball uh, contract. He was drafted in the top 10, just signed a baseball contract where his signing bonus was $4.6 million. He can play, and it was with, I think, the Oakland A's. They're letting him play out this season in college football, but then he has to report to the Oakland A's. He has to report to camp. The NCAA is fine with that. So why not be fine with these guys 
getting paid for their services because you're raking in so much money. This isn't 1920s college football. This isn't 1910 college football. You know what I mean? Where, okay, you know, you got some proceeds from ticket sales. Nobody was paying to park. Nobody was coming to the stadiums back then and eating. You understand what I'm saying? I mean, where there weren't TV rights. There wasn't all this money that's being generated. It Video just, games too. Right. I mean, it just makes it just makes practical sense. But these but you have this faction of people who have this old school style of thinking, well, it's amateurism, it's amateurism. Okay, you're correct. However, you can't keep saying it's amateurism and you're making billions of dollars off it because that's not amateurism. It just isn't. Yeah, I think that there's a confluence here, right? So there are some people who want to keep the game pure, some people who are afraid of uh, people being enticed to get drafted, right? So they're the whole idea that an NFL team might pay somebody in advance to get them on their team. So they want to just keep the money out of sports in general. Um, And then there also is, I think there's a certain amount of greed, or at least the schools are like, this is our big cash cow. This is the main way that our school is generating revenue. And if we have to start profit sharing with the players, all of a sudden we have to rethink our entire budget and how, where our money's going. And so I think there's a kind of a confluence of factors that, like you said, is coming from old heads would make a, statement like this is supposed to be an amateur sport when um that's a that's a oversimplification and it's you know basically very see-through bs um but you know these universities have a lot of power these boards do and and um a lot of them are very influential people outside of just universities they're goes um and i think we're seeing in the nfl with kaepernick um, Collusion. Yeah, I mean, to be, and I don't need. Maybe it might not be something very formal, but it's just a matter of okay, we're all on the same page on this, right? Right. Okay. Cool. You're done. You know, or we're not doing that. You know, and especially when again, it's going to hit their pockets. What incentive do they have to actually, you know, do something different? Yeah, it's it's like you said, it's one hundred percent laughable. So, but I'll tell you what, I will settle for the video game and just give them like, you know, like you said, maybe you even put it in the trust and they can't get it until they get their degree. Fine. But I want the video game. (laughs) So at the end of the day, we all agree. And I think most people agree that they should get something for all this money that they're generating. No doubt. Yeah, for sure. So speaking of sports controversies, um, what do you think about the whole Serena Williams controversy? Do you think there was anything to that or was it much ado about nothing? Which one? The Australian girls going blackface? Oh, no. I did, did that happen? When was that? Two days ago. Oh, no, I did not see that. I was talking about the, uh, the one where she uh, lost to Osaka. Oh, no. Osaka kicked her butt. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's that was just Osaka won hands down. Osaka was winning, but was Serena correct in what she said to the uh, court judge? Yes, she was one hundred percent correct. And should she have been uh, docked a point? No, no, 
it was sexism as well as colorism, racism here on display once again. You know, with our current president in office, a lot of these races are, they're very emboldened right now. And, you know, there are, just like there are degrees of temperature, there are degrees of races. You know what I'm saying? And this guy showed that not only is he against women, he's a chauvinist, but he's also a racist. Because- didn't they say something along the lines of that, like Rafael Nadal and uh, one other big male tennis player had said that they didn't like him or that he had been an issue in the past as well? Exactly. So is it maybe more that he just is jealous of the tennis players and he tries to like unduly weigh, uh, wield a heavy hand on them, especially the big names? That could be some of that in there. So there, yeah. so he, uh, the Serena's coach did admit after the reason the penalty was called was because her coach was coaching, which sounds absurd, but apparently in tennis, your coach is not allowed to coach you during the game using hand signals or gestures or anything like that. You're just supposed to play as you would just opponent on opponent. You can't get any outside help. And the, uh, the official saw something that looked like a hand gesture aimed at Serena. She claimed she didn't see it, but the coach did admit later that he was trying to coach her. I think because I coached youth sports for like 13 years. All right. I coached football, basketball, baseball. I even helped with my daughter's track team. And I don't, yes, was he, but I don't think he was. It's kind of like, you know, there are certain things you just do naturally, like, cause, because they're, they're motor reflexes. You understand what I mean? Like even when I watch football right now, if I'm explaining something to somebody as I'm watching football, my hands start going and I start gesturing. All right. I think that guy, he said, you know, I don't even think Serena could even see me because of where I was sitting. So I'm just doing what I naturally do as I'm watching a tennis match and I'm coaching. I mean, that's my player out there. So I'm naturally going to coach my player. And he even said a lot of the coaches do it just as a motor reflex, not necessarily trying to gain an advantage. It's just, you know, you start, you, you know what I mean? You, you start thinking out loud, so to, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, it, it is odd that she's being accused of, of cheating now. It's, she's been at the top of this game for a very long time, and there's never been anything dirty about the way she plays. So it is a little odd that it would come up now. Also, it's one of those things that just snowballs. And then there's the uh, pretty racist cartoon that came out afterwards. Did you guys see that? Yeah. Oh, yes. But yeah. I think about that cartoon is I think that the thing that was really racist was not the same thing as everybody else. Like, everybody else thinks it, it was racist that they depicted her as, like, swole and dark. And I'm like, well, she is kind of swole and she is kind of dark. So I don't see how that's racist. But what I found was racist was that they they portrayed, you know, her opponent as a white lady, I think, in the in the cartoon. Mm-hmm. And that yeah. was that made no sense to me. And that was, to me, what I thought people should have been a little bit more mad about. I didn't understand why people were so mad about her being depicted as like, you know, this buff chick, because that's what she is. Yeah, I think it was a little and I agree with you. I did notice that and I saw people had noticed that on social media as well that he portrayed uh Naomi Osaka as a uh kind of a blonde looking white chick. And um 
the the drawing itself of Serena was a little bit like Jim Crowish. It was pretty it was pretty offensive on purpose. It wasn't that she was just dark and swole. She is those things, but they they made her look they exaggerated her features in an unflattering way, more so than you would in a regular caricature. But would you though? Would you though? Like, all right, and I know that this is an unpopular thing to say, but I know. <laughs> Think about all these cartoons we've seen of Donald Trump. And I don't like Donald Trump. You know I don't like Donald Trump. But think about how he looks and all character caricaturize the shit and any yeah. other. And so I didn't feel like her caricature there was any different from those, to be honest with you. We'll see. I, now, here's where I agree and disagree, because I think I see your point where um, there's different levels of caricatures, right? So if you look at a caricature of Obama, he's going to have the big floppy ears because Obama had huge ears. You'll see caricatures of people that are respected and they exaggerate their features, but you can tell it's not done maliciously. And with when Donald Trump, he is so hated by most people, especially most people that are cartoonists that, that are going to be drawing him. They're, they're going to try to make it as offensive as possible. They're drawing him as a baby. They're drawing him orange they're making him look ridiculous and i feel like you that came out it's like comedy you can tell when comedy comes from a place of uh we're just kidding it comes from a place of love it's like oh, i'm just messing with you and when it's malicious when it's mm-hmm. designed to be hurtful to somebody else and that was the first gut reaction that a lot of people got from that drawing of serena was that this is beyond she just slammed a tennis racket it's not it's not like she did some egregious crime and you're drawing her as if you're trying to be hurtful. That's what it seemed like. And I guess that's all going to be very um, in the eye of the beholder or subjective. Yeah, yeah very subjective. Because the guy's defending himself. He's saying that that wasn't his intention. But I, mean, I do think it's wrong that um, he portrayed her opponent as a white lady. And that dichotomy, to me, that kind of sense an issue mm-hmm. um for sure um but you know it is what it is it's just like in this super super sensitive environment though like i just are we is that what we're doing now is that i mean like outside of that that whole thing that we just discussed is that what we're doing now like now we're going to go after the cartoonists for you know doing a caricature, caricature of people i mean that was the whole thing about charlie hebdo was like you know freaking Islamist, you know, killing a bunch of people because of a cartoon of Muhammad. And like, she's not even, it's not like she's Jesus or Muhammad even, you know what I'm saying? Like, to me, it's a slippery slope and it just depends on where your focus is, right? And it's a slippery slope if we're just saying that now you can't do, of any group that might be, um, might have been historically oppressed, that you can't do any cartoons of them. Like, I mean, I, you know, I'm a huge proponent of cultural sensitivity, but I just, I don't think that that's necessarily a good direction for us to go for anyone. We're already like, right. Who are starting to feel like they're a minority and they're persecuted, and I just, it'll be, it'll be a interesting society if we're in a place where everybody feels like they're persecuted all the time, you know. Right. I just, I just think it's hard to tell another person whether or not they're offended by something. And, and that's why I think these conversations oftentimes, you know, go in so many different directions because it's hard to dictate another person's perspective. 
you know, giving this, you know, cartoon that we're all talking about, like when I first saw it, I found it offensive because to me it made the caricature made her look, it wasn't a flattering, you know, one It made her look like she was in the jungle. You know what I mean? And growing up 19, you know, I'm, you know, I was born in 68. I'll be 50 in a couple of days. <laughs> uh, so, you know, one of the, one of the things, you know, one of the racial slurs that I used to hear growing up in Western PA was jungle bunny. So having that in my, you know, cerebral cortex and then seeing that character, that's the first thing that came to mind. You know what I mean? Or spear chucker. Now I understand, you know, we can't be but so sensitive because one of my favorite comedians of all times is Richard Pryor. Now come on. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, but I think what you're saying, you know, has a lot of validity because look what happened to Randy White when he went to Congress and had a very passionate speech and he said some things about, you know, some some ethnic uh, folks, you know what I mean, that people took way out of context. And he, you know, this guy was a preacher. I mean, he was always a great guy. But he said, you know, about, you know, I don't know if you guys remember the speech or not. I'll just tell you, you know, 30 seconds. He was, he just took all the racial uh, stereotypes about a, a few groups and he said they were positive. He, he was talking about how Spanish folks all like to live in the same house and saying, you know, they're very strong in community and things of that. He was saying things like that. And people afterwards, they, you know, they were very appalled by what he said. And that's when it first came to my, you know, consciousness that perspective is a hard thing to understand unless you have some very unique experiences which will allow you to port yourself, see it from that other person's side. Um, so with this Serena thing, bringing it back here, I think what we have is should this cartoonist have apologized? Well, ask Serena Williams because it was about her. So if she feels as though that he should apologize because it wasn't flattering to her, then I guess, you know, the man should apologize. Outside of that, every, everyone else just has an opinion. And I'm totally on board with that. I'm totally on board with that. And, and that's part of the, like, the issue, right? It's like, so living here in Los Angeles, especially in right after the Me Too movement's kind of peak, um, like a lot of people here, there, there's been a, it's like definitely whatever you are, and especially like, especially if you're a white male, man, and, and it's, it's kind of awkward sometimes in those friendships that like wherever you are means that's the only experience you have. And like people don't care about anything else and they jump to all sorts of conclusions um, about, you know, because they might not totally agree with what you say, all of a sudden your point is not valid because you're not from the same group as them. You know? Right. Uh, and that's, that's the whole point. Like, for example, this is with the Kaepernick thing. I had a, kind of an issue with family friend where basically um, they got really upset about Kaepernick and I was saying that I don't see what people are upset about and the person went on a whole thing rant, you know, against me saying well he's disrespecting veterans da 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 and I'm like 
I'm a veteran. Right. African-American descent. I don't feel offended whatsoever. And actually, I fought for his rights to do that. Right. But she already, she just assumed that, you know, she didn't even think about that. Just assumed that because I'm African-American that I just didn't see outside of that perspective, which isn't true. You know, and I find that that's happening more and more where people are trying to make assumptions about people's life experiences when they don't freaking know them, you know, right? And especially in the age of social media. And that's why I totally agree with what you were saying, where I think it's much more important that those individuals or the people who are actually involved have the dialogue and people just stop trying to act like they know everything about the situation when they're, you know, maybe living in a basement in St. Louis and know any of the people involved and haven't aren't in any of the associations that those people are, you know, engaged in. Like it just doesn't make any sense to me. Um, the whole internet attack mobs. Oh man. It's so crazy. Talking about the Kaepernick thing. I'm on this, uh, you know, cause you always see me. I'm always poking the bear out there on uh, social media. Oh yeah. And on, on one of the USMC sites that I'm, uh, you know, that I'm a, or not actually, it wasn't a USMC site, uh, but it was just—I can't remember whose page it was. But long story short, everyone was, you know, mostly white folks talking about how Kaepernick is against the military, and I'm like, no, that's not true. Posted a couple articles, you know, some. When you throw facts at somebody, and if they don't come back with supporting facts from their perspective, then you know their perspective is based upon internal ideologies. Mm-hmm. If you understand what I'm saying by that. Yeah, I think so. We can have a difference of opinion, okay? In your opinion, you're going to present with references. This is how I this is why I feel this way. Here are points of references that are factual. You can touch, you can, you know, you can analyze for yourself. That's a thought-based opinion. But the moment you can't do that, then your opinion is simply based upon your own thought process, based upon your own experiences. Mm-hmm. When you get into that slippery slope of racism. Yeah, you're- it's, it's, it's so funny to me. You'll find the most racist in the most non-diverse areas. Like you live in the area of, 10,000 people, and there are no black people, but you hate black people because of crime. But nobody in your area that is black or committing any crimes. It's all black so it's, why do you have angst against black? It's amazing it, to me. It's easy when you don't know anybody who falls in that category to... to mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, well, I mean... That's part and, of the why... Black people, I think, actually have, or at least historically, I don't know. Right now, and we can get into maybe some other. I mean, I do think there's some camps now that have really bought into this um, white people are always bad and black people are always good mentality. Mm-hmm. There are bought into that. But historically, I think that people of color have always been able to have a certain level of empathy for white people because it was a white majority country. White people had the money. And so if you wanted to live in this country, you had to do some dealings with with people of European descent. If you are European American, you didn't necessarily have to do that. And I think that uh, 
you know, kind of not as much empathy among certain groups because they were not, like you said, completely not exposed um, to those groups. And so it was easy to just be like, oh, they're bad or they're evil or there's something inferior about them because I really don't know anything about them. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, and that's what I was telling these folks. I'm like, you are getting on Kaepernick and talking about how he's so against veterans and so against the military. But here I am as a veteran telling you it's not against the military. And here I am posting you facts from veterans saying that whether I agree with, I don't agree with the KKK is one of the things that I said. Like, I don't agree with the KKK, but I'm not going to sit here and say that the KKK should not be able to have a rally because I fought for their rights to have a rally the same way I fought for Kaepernick to freaking kneel. So it's, 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 I can't choose who I want freedom of speech to be delegated to. Because it's the moment I do that, then I'm then I'm working off of internal biases. That's a big problem right now. Is uh, where do we draw the lines with freedom of speech? Because you do have these little dog whistles that come through as we as we've been talking about. But sometimes, I mean, context matters. I think we have people on one side that are unwilling to listen to the grievances of people of color and have consistently been unable to empathize and just say, well, my experience isn't like that. So it devalidates yours. Then on the other side, you have people that emphasize with that and they go, they go full lean at Dunham and go overboard. They do what we're seeing from like the liberal uh, Hollywood types and journalists nowadays where they're, they're saying, okay, everything a person of color or anyone who's perceived to be a minority is now taken as literal gospel. Yeah, and, and I've, that, seen, I've seen that a lot here. Or oh, I'm so down with whatever is going on. Like when I'm up in Beverly Hills or in um, Santa Monica, and then I'll say they'll ask me where I live, and I'm like, "Well, I live, you know, just south of uh, the Coliseum, you know, South Central LA." And they're like, "Oh yeah, I never go over there." <laughs> or <laughs> with Linwood, Linwood next to Watts. And people just automatically change the subject because, I mean, they go out of their way to avoid those areas. Uh-huh. So it's like uh, you have positioned yourself to feel like you care. They don't, it, it's it's like you've always said, it's it's virtue signaling. It's what they would like to think of themselves as, as opposed mm-hmm. to what they're doing with their time and resources. Yep, and kind of uh, back off of John's point earlier where he's talking about people that live in those isolated communities and it's like, how can you hate black people when you have never even had any experiences with them? It's kind of a similar thing, although less nefarious directly in these liberal communities. Like I, I went to school in Boulder. I live and it's vastly white there and vastly wealthy. And there's all these people that uh, consider themselves to be good people and they offer up these uh, false platitudes, but they don't hang out with any people of color. They don't want to work with any people of color. They don't even want to listen to rap. They're like, they'll get offended if you put that on. It's like, well, you're not really willing to to extend that olive branch or learn about anybody else's experiences. You're just doing the opposite of what the other side is doing. That's why that's what I love about that's what I loved about the military so much, to be quite frank with you. It's because it took people from isolated areas and it forced them to learn about other people and other cultures. And then once you learn about other people and other cultures, you, or let me say it the other way around. Once you learn about other cultures, you then learn about the people. 
So therefore, it breaks down those internal bias, this you know that internal bias meter by saying that these people are so different than me. And then you find out, oh wow, you have poor people in your community. Yeah, we have poor people in my community too. Oh wow, you have rich people. Oh yeah, so did I. Oh yeah, you you guys like your chicken fried this way. Well, this is the way my mom. And you learn that there isn't as much that separates us as what we are told that separates us because yes. racism is taught people you know I, I the only thing the only fear that we as humans are born with is the fear of falling you take a baby you put a snake in front of the baby it ain't gonna cry it ain't gonna know what the heck the snake is you put a gun in front of the baby say I can go on forever but you toss a baby up in the air that baby's gonna start shaking and crying the only fear where every other fear we are taught. You know, I, I often post on Facebook um, pictures from lynchings. All right. And what's very interesting, what's always been very interesting to me are the people in the crowd, because oftentimes you'll see way more children than you see adults. And I often pose the question, what happened to those kids? Who are those kids now? Their grandparents or great-grandparents, some of them, depending on when the photo was taken, what have what lineage have they passed down to their family? Mm-hmm. And that is very important because when you when you start understanding, I'm sure when you guys were in the Navy, you know what I mean? You were stationed and bunking with people from all parts of this country. You learned, I mean, I learned so many different things from all different types of people is crazy. And then at the end, you all come together as a team. You coalesce around the ideology of we're in this together, sink or swim. So we have to rely upon one another. So I have to trust you. I have to have some sort of empathy and warmth towards you. Mm-hmm. And it all works. That's why we have one of the greatest militaries in the world. Because we're able to do that. So imagine if we could do that on a larger community what would really happen. See, I agree with you 100%. And I think there's a, that's a good conversation to have. I think there's a conversation we need to have as a society because I always tell people that same thing. I mean, I saw people that had never met people from any group you can name and all these people coming together and now you're not hanging out so much based on external attributes. It's like, where are all the people that are gunner's mates going to go? and all the people that are deck crew and engineers, that's who's hanging out together. And right. all that other, all that other message just gets stripped away. You're just, you're not white or black or brown or yellow. You're green or you're blue. Right. Uh, I think it depends on your ship, man. Because like a lot of the Norfolk-based ships were like that, but I was on a ship that was based out of Mayport, you know, from Deep South. Uh, or was it, yeah, I think it was Mayport. And they were not like that, dude. It was, uh, it was very segregated on that ship. So I think, I think each ship has its own culture, and it really depends. Yeah. To be honest, that yeah, there could be other units like that too. I mean, I guess our, our experience might be limited to our units, but yeah. But what, I, but what I will say is that, like, what even though people might have hung out in their different groups on the ship, you know. Um, they still had more interaction than they probably did in their home communities. And then that, yes. yeah, 
And there are people that will leave the military and then go back to those communities with this new information. And it's right. up to them to carry that mantle because they're going to go to that pressure. Like a lot of, the, I feel like the, I, I wish the KKK was looked at as what it is. It's kind of just a gang that has a lot of negative influence and it preys True. on vulnerable people. True. So I, you know, I watched this uh, documentary and there's this kid coming out of the Marine Corps and he goes back to Chicago where he's from. And he he's like, man, this is just unacceptable that, that Americans are living in these conditions and that people have to go through this shit. And people... I mean, have a choice to make when they come back as to what example they're going to set is kind of my point. And I feel that same way. If you're from one of those homogenous white communities that tend to be racist, it's deep Trump country, not, not really any type of diversity at all. And you all have these monolithic ideas about the others, whoever those may be. And you travel the world, you know that all of that shit is made up and that, no, there really is no real divide that needs to be here then you go back into your natural ecosystem and you're the only one that believes that what are you going to do yeah yeah it's tough because at the end of the day you still have to live in whatever community you choose and to always you put you in a position where you either have to shut up or you just have to tell people what they want to hear right yeah it, it comes down to like how how strong is your willpower? Because I mean, are you going to be that guy when you're sitting in the office and somebody starts going down that rabbit hole and they're making the same jokes that you used to laugh at before you were in the military. And then now you, it doesn't make you feel good anymore because you're thinking of all these people that had your back that, that you're, you're realizing that this is bullshit and you're thinking, well, do I stand up to this or what? And a lot of people aren't going to do that. A lot of people find it easier to just fall back into complacency. Right. Yeah. Good point. Very, very have, good point. I think we have to make it um, the norm to stand up for what's right, just in any capacity. I think a lot, uh, there's so much group think. There's group think on, on both sides. There's right think and there's wrong think. And we've long known that that was the deal with modern dogmatic conservatism. But if you look at what's happening on the left now, it's like, if you don't toe the line 110%, you're kicked out of the club. And the left isn't right about everything. I know we're all, uh, we all tend to be liberal leaning on this side, but I can admit that liberals are not always correct. Oh right. yeah, 100%. Yeah, I think I'm more of a centrist, than, you know, I'm. I'm I'm so independent, it's crazy, because there are, you know, I'm a gun-loving, if somebody were to call me a liberal, I'd be like, yeah, I don't think too many liberals have as many guns as I do. Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't, I don't think too many liberals believe that not everybody on a football team should get a trophy, you know what I mean? Yeah, so, for sure. You know, so I have some very independent thought ideas. Uh, which I think, if we if more people had independent thought ideas versus groupthink, we would find our way to more solutions versus just repeating the same issues. To be honest with you, though, I think part of the reason why we have the politicians we do is not because there's not a lot of people who are independent thinkers, but I think there's a huge level of apathy among those independent thinkers, and they stay at home. They don't go to the polls. Yeah, could be. Could be. There's a lot of issues, right? And that most voters 
just because of how much time it takes to be well versed on all the issues are really single issue voters because that's the most they have the capacity you know outside of like going to their job and providing for their family and you know just being a regular human being <laughs> the most they have time eligible on maybe two to three three things max and i mean it's taken me three years of graduate education to get a basic understanding of economics so like, <laughs> somebody who didn't have you know any college education would be well equipped to talk about some of these macroeconomic issues that we will but I, well i think if you yeah i yes i yeah Mm-hmm. Sorry. Being in, it's different again because where I live, and it's all. I mean, our local news is about national politics. Mm-hmm. You understand? What I mean, and large scale budgets and things of that nature. And when you think about that, a lot of local news and a lot of you know general. And I don't want to say local news, but let me just say a lot of general information about politics just flow around this DMV area. You're just naturally involved in it. It's kind of like being close to a fire. You're going to feel the heat. You understand what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Just seeing and hearing about a fire on TV. You know what I mean? So I think that's proximity. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure how much of this is to blame on the people and how much is to blame on the media? I think and politicians, I put them in the same class. I would say there's some give and take to that argument because the general apathy of the average person is what allows this climate to um, to fill this vacuum. I guess is what it allows this uh, this era of fake news and sensationalism to take hold. But then on the other on the other side, um, that's what people want to watch. They don't tune into PBS. They're not listening to NPR. They're not interested in hearing a long, drawn-out discussion that would explain these policies to them, and they can't be bothered to Google it either. So they just want to see a show. And the news has kind of acquiesced to that. The news is like, fine, we'll give you a show. It's Anderson Cooper slams Tucker Carlson. Like, they're using WWE buzzwords now and CNN headlines. It's pretty pathetic. There's more things vying attention. I think I posted that article not too long ago where they did a longitudinal study about reading. Uh, reading just one book um, in a year. And this is the lowest rate that Americans have read at least one book in the last year. Um, and uh, I think it was something that was like less than 20-something percent of Americans read at least one book in the last year. So, and think about what it, it, what it takes to read a book. It takes a day or two of a very hard concentration and end up on the same issue and there's things to understand so you need to go look those things up um and we don't have a, a media culture now we it's so inundated that anything that takes longer than 20 to 30 seconds we're not conditioned to do you know? have you noticed what like social media has started doing um you know, like the CNNs of the world, and things, whenever they post an article, have you noticed over the last like six to eight months, you you started seeing how long it'll take to read the article? It'll say like two minute read, three yeah. minute read. Oh, wow. Yeah. If you look at the article. Too long, didn't read. 
and then they'll right. give you the gist of it. <laughs> it like, and, and then you'll see the articles that are the longer reads have the less click rates. You know what I mean? You'll, you'll see like the two-minute read article or the one-minute read article has 257,000 shares or something. You know what I mean? But that three-minute read article has 50 shares. <laughs> it's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. It so is. I think that that's a big part of it is just like our bandwidth. Um, in order to effectively manage our bandwidth with all these different things going on, People are just, and then also the fact that we have all these different new formats. People aren't really listening long form anymore. I mean, there are some people. Obviously, all of us do. We all we all do podcasts. The podcast, but um, there's a lot more people. If you were to compare that to the people that are on Snapchat, um, I think you'd see a lot more people on Snapchat than listening to podcasts personally. Or Instagram now, because I guess Instagram kind of stole some of Snapchat's features. <laughs> yeah, Snapchat's not going to be around for much longer, I don't think. Well, was there any other questions on the docket for today? No, I mean, we actually went over time today, but we had a great discussion. Um, John, do you have anything you wanted to add? I'm sorry, what you say? Oh, I said uh, we, we're actually wrapping up here. We went over time, and I think we kind of covered everything that we had planned, unless you had something uh, something else you wanted to get to today. No, no, fine. I mean, I really appreciate you guys having me on today. And I think the discussions were, were very thought-provoking. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, Joe and I are going to wrap it up here. You can go ahead and drop off. Um, I'll convene with you later. Thanks for your time, John. And guys, again, you can go check out the Light Podcast. John, where can they see that? Uh, you can check it out on all social or all your uh, music providers or all social media platforms. It is the uh, we're on Facebook, the T H E Light L I G H T Podcast. P O D C A S T Podcast is part of the name, and uh, we appreciate uh, you guys having us on. Mm-hmm. And I'm still waiting for my shirt because I haven't got it yet. Oh, man, those T-shirts are the bane of my existence right now. Let me tell you. <laughs> it's been a year trying to – because it has so many different colors on it. So it's, 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 it's trying to find the right vendor and everything. It's crazy, man. It's crazy. Yeah. All nice right. to meet you. All right. Y'all be, y'all be good. Thanks. Yep. Peace. Right. All right, man. What do you think? 70 minutes in? Yeah, so gotta do leader of the free world and uh, well, it's evil genius first. That's right, evil genius. So I'm gonna blast through mine really quick because we should have uh, we wanted to get to him last week, but we had some issues and we couldn't uh, record last week. So I'm gonna talk about the Triple G uh, Canelo Alvarez fight. I think that uh, I think it was a good decision. I think Canelo won. Um, I'm going to say that Max Kellerman and the entire staff over there at HBO is going to be getting the ire of my rage, whatever. I'm not even making sense anymore. <laughs> they do. They dropped the ball in the biggest way. First of all, all three of the prelims ended in the first round or close to the first round. So in like 20 minutes, everybody had fought and there was damn near two hours left until the main event. And I'd never seen that happen before. 
So HBO, I guess, is not prepared for that if that happens. And they were like, well, now we have to fill in an hour and 45 minutes of just talking. So we watched Canelo do jump rope and we watched Gennady Golovkin stretch for like two hours while Max Kellerman tried to entertain us. And it was painful. And they showed their bias in the most ridiculous way. They were clearly rooting for Gennady Golovkin to win. And it just, it really annoyed me. It was just bad, sloppy broadcasting. HBO had enough time to air the entire previous fight. They could have played the whole 12 rounds and still had time to kill. Like, you should have a plan for that. That's broadcast 101. But um, leader of the free world's got to be Canelo Alvarez coming up through all the adversity. A lot of people aren't going to like that. A lot of people thought that the judges were skewed in his favor, which is absurd. He won the fight. Um, He's going to knock... Uh, old boy out when they fight for the third time. Salute to Canelo Alvarez. Uh, Joe, it's on you. Uh, kind of going off of yours, I'd definitely say AT&T right now with the completion of the AT&T Prime Warner deal um, is causing a lot of consternation and anxiety in Hollywood. I think Disney would like to think they have it all in the bag. Hulu, in a lot of ways, would like Disney to have it all in the bag because it would make it easier. It's a product that's never made any money. Um, but um, AT&T's uh, acquisition of Time Warner gives them a big space and a place in the media space and um, kind of blocks um, the play, you know, the big players here from just doing whatever they want, particularly Disney. Uh, and on top of that, the biggest disruption they cell phone. And, you know, which also kicks to um, the, uh, whatchamacallit, the tablets and that delivery mechanism. And on top of that, they have the NFL Sunday ticket. So, yes, Disney is the biggest show in, in L.A., but AT&T, the cell phone carrier, is coming up to challenge. And that's kind of interesting mm. to see. Yeah. Uh, in terms of leader of the free world, uh, you don't know his name? That's funny. I should. I'm going to learn it. Now, this is new. It's breaking news. You know, um, I'm going with the Cleveland Browns quarterback. Okay. Boy, I mean, 16 and 0. And then what was the year before that? It was like 1 and 15. <laughs> Something like that. They and they they've had that before. It's not like this is a new thing. He's That's a rookie. Cool. And he beat Sam Darnell, our you know quarterback. Jets. I'm a Jets fan, and he's also a USC alum. And I think Darnell's great, um, and the Browns QB showed him up. So I'm going to learn a little bit more about this guy. I don't know who he is right now, um, but he's on my radar, and he's, you know, bringing a lot of joy to the city of Cleveland, which, like you said, uh, <laughs> in football, <laughs> is a pretty miserable town. <laughs> yeah. We talked about those New Jersey's are, are cold. So I might – I don't think I'll ever be a Cleveland Browns, like, fan fan, like I'm a Jets fan. But I might have a soft spot for Cleveland this year. Yeah, super weird that you're a Jets fan too. I, <laughs> but didn't they just beat the Jets? That was who they beat, right? They beat the Jets. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think it was gonna. I don't think anybody thought it was gonna happen because Sam Darnell's looking really, really good. Um. So yeah, the Jets. Jets have some things they work on, but the Browns. Uh, so we'll have to keep an eye on them this season. Yeah, that's funny. I think uh, what I gathered from that is you're kind of a sports fan in the same way that I am, where you're like, 
I just want who I like more at the moment to win. I'm a Jets fan. At this point, I'm more of a Jets fan than a Vikings fan. Yeah. Um, it, it, but it, the thing is with the Jets is that, like, they haven't had a super great team in probably seven, eight years. So it's like I want them to win, but I have the reality that, like, they're not – you know, right now they're probably a 9-17 and 17 at mm-hmm. best, 10 and 6. So um, – and they it doesn't look like they have a Super Bowl caliber team, like, on the immediate horizon. It's the same way that, like, I'm – I'm really good into the USC thing. Um, I didn't think that that would happen, um, but there's just such a strong culture here. Um, but I mean, I know this year that they'd be lucky if they get a bowl. They'd be very lucky if they get a bowl this year. They'll get lucky um, 50 or 500 this year, you know? Yeah. All right. Well, I got to say that was a good episode. We went a little bit over time. Hopefully you guys can forgive us. Um, and yeah, Joe, that's all I got. All right, man. We'll, we'll talk soon. And uh, thanks for introducing John and you, the rest of our listeners. Have a good week. Yep. And shout out to the Light Podcast. Uh, guys, go check it out. Make sure you check this out everywhere where streaming happens. <laughs>